Hi, and welcome to episode 139 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Chris Tran joining us. Dr. Tran is a Southern California native who has a degree in psychology from USC, a medical degree from Ahari Medical College in Nashville, and completed ENT residency at LSU. He is board certified by the American Board of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. Dr. Tran lives in Houston, Texas, and has a comprehensive ENT practice with particular interests in breathing-related surgery and in-office procedures. He enjoys collaborating with local healthcare providers to optimize patient outcomes and has a strong passion for educating and empowering students and patients. Real quick, if you're listening to this on Monday, November 29th, on the date that it airs, run to themyomembership.com and join us because doors are currently open through 5 p.m. Eastern time today. Our Black Friday deal and Cyber Monday deal are still going on, themyomembership.com. Oh, and by the way, today's guest, Dr. Chris Tran, will be joining us in January 2021 to present to the Mayo Membership for continuing education credits. So you do not want to miss it. Go to themyomembership.com and learn all about out, the CEUs, the research reviews, the case study calls, and the weekly office hours and daily Q&A wall. Tons of support, lots of past materials. Join us in there, themyomembership.com. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Vulcan. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. It's not often that we get an ENT on the podcast and an ENT who thinks similarly. So I'm really excited to hear about your experience. And maybe if we could start with telling us about your your journey into the sleep and airway management space. Can you can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I am a board certified ENT. Um, I have a uh, practice in uh, Webster, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. Um, I, my, my clinical focuses are uh, airway optimization for sleep apnea and breathing, uh, sinonasal surgery, uh, functional frenioplasty, uh, and tethered oral tissues management, and uh, office-based uh, procedures uh, and techniques. Um, I, I treat uh, pediatric and adult patients, uh, and I really try to espouse a collaborative care model as, as part of my treatment. And and all that kind of developed uh, as I as I kind of went down the rabbit hole of uh, tethered oral tissues. Uh, so, so just as a kind of a introdu- introduction to how that happened for me, uh, I know there's a lot of stigma out there about you know how ENTs do do not focus on these things or are not knowledgeable about these things. But um, I started out that way too. Um, so uh, I had excellent ENT training. I, I studied at uh, LSU uh, Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Uh, and great ENT training there um, that well prepared me for for all aspects of, of practice. Um, 
However, uh, just like uh, traditional ENT training, um, we didn't really learn much about uh, tongue ties. Um, and so uh, it just so happens that uh, in my practice, we actually have a pediatrician's office um, uh, right above our clinic. And so um, sometimes uh, they would send down um, babies for tongue tie evaluations. And uh, at the beginning, when I was starting to uh, practice, you know, when you initially start practice, your schedule is pretty light. Um, so I would be able to see them, right? like pretty immediately. So um, I practiced what I was taught uh, and just, you know, doing simple tongue clippings with some scissors and setting patients on their way. Um, but uh, because my schedule was light, I decided, you know what, let me just follow up with some of these patients. Uh, even though, you know, uh, traditionally we we're never really uh, encouraged to follow up with these patients um, after doing a clipping. Uh, and so I ended up uh, bringing some back and to my chagrin, they were not uh, improving as I would expect they would. Uh, and I just never knew, like, and I would never have known if I didn't ask them to come back. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so, so that's when I found, uh, when I realized like I was missing something. Um, so actually, uh, to stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, looked up, uh, I, you know, I did Google search, right? <laughs> like, okay, what am I missing? Right. And I stumbled across, uh, Sarush Zaghi's, uh, one of his lectures. Um, and after I listened to this lecture, I think it was like an hour uh, long lecture. I, my mind was blown. I, I was just flabbergasted because I didn't realize that what I was doing was not up to the standard of care that I would have wanted, you know, that, that I want for my patients. So, um, so that's what led me down the rabbit hole. And, and I started to do more, uh, do more, uh, research and, uh, uh, took some courses, took the breathe course and, uh, uh, took, Richard Baxter's course, um, both of those courses, phenomenal. Um, and I think what really helped me really incorporate this uh, into my practice pretty seamlessly uh, was that, you know, I had such good ENT training um, in at LSU. Uh, I was very comfortable with the anatomy already. I just didn't think about the functional side of it and what I was doing when I was releasing, right? Um, but after taking those courses and kind of opening my eyes to that, uh, it was actually, it fits in very nicely with the rest of my ENT knowledge, right? Uh -huh. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy how you, you know, sometimes you have all this knowledge, but you just were missing one piece of the puzzle, but you didn't know that piece of the puzzle was missing. And then now that that piece is there, a lot of other things in ENT also make more sense. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of what led me down to, to that. that. I love that. I, and everybody has such interesting stories of how they kind of stumbled into the space of, you know, bio and tots and airway and in the way that we look at it from this perspective. And it was similar for me. Like I was practicing as a speech pathologist. I knew what I knew from school and from what my, you know, my patients. And then 
took a Mayo course and I was like, oh, my, my child is tongue tied and has a lip tie. And that's why breastfeeding was painful for 13 months, but I was turned away by two ENTs and a lactation consultant and a pediatrician. And, you know, and it's, you know, and I love that you said that you went back and had these, you had the patients come back because there's always people joke about it. Not that it's funny, but they're all like, you know, well, if people actually, you know, had the patients come back and ask them, like did some quality control and check-ins to see like, did it and did function improve? We might actually see that no, if we're just, you know, doing too far of an anterior clipping function, maybe improve yeah. for a couple of weeks with, with infant feeding or, you know, and then parents kind of report like it was status quo again. And so I think yeah. it's really cool that you had that opportunity to bring people back yeah. and then kind of go, Hey, something's up here. Like, how do we change this? And, and I, I think that speaks volumes too, because I think some providers would kind of go like, Oh, you know what, this doesn't work. And use that as a reason to like, not even entertain the whole tongue tie conversation. And instead you said, hold right. on, how do we make this better for these patients? So I, it's just like for my mom heart and my therapy heart over here, where I see these parents struggle with these infants, I'm like, Oh, how do we create more of you? Can we clone you? <laughs> clone you 10 times yeah, over. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so unfortunate because, because everything else that we do uh, like tonsillectomies, uh, nasal surgery, septoplasty, like everything has a follow-up. Like you always see patients in follow-up, but for some reason in the medical education, like why does this not require follow-up? <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. But, but it's like one of the, it's like if somebody taught me that the shape of a circle is actually called a square, I'll continue to call it a square until somebody makes me understand that that's actually not a square. It's actually a circle, right? Um, so it's, it's, uh, it definitely was eye-opening. And, and, and that's one of the things that I was saying, like, it actually makes sense, right? It makes sense that we follow up just like every other surgery. Um, but for some reason, you know, that has not been the traditional teaching. Yeah. And then I, my question for you too, on that whole follow-up piece is obviously with the newborn, we don't always do a lot of pre-op per se, um, older kids and adults we do, but what about post-op? Are you a big proponent of teaching like active wound care? Cause I know you're not suturing like a newborn, you know, what do you, what do you yeah. think of your protocol in that? Yeah. Yeah. So generally how it happens, uh, in my, uh, in my clinic is, uh, so I have, uh, like tongue tie Tuesday and tongue tie Thursday. <laughs> I love it. Um, I have that on social yeah. media. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually have those days are uh, set aside for like other oral tissues patients. Um, so uh, and and what we do is is when uh, when patients know that that's what they're coming in for, uh, we actually will send them uh, videos um, to watch ahead of time. So it's kind of like a primer. Uh, educationally, but also, um, especially for the infants, there's a stretch video, so they can kind of have an idea of like what it what it looks like or what you're supposed to be doing for the stretches. Um, and then uh, my protocol for once they are uh, getting the release, so um, I will typically do the release and then uh, have them do a trial feed afterwards, and then we do some stretches, um, or sometimes we'll do the the stretches before we do the trial feed, depending. Um, but uh, but I always go through um, the stretches with the parents before uh, before they leave, um, because it's one thing to watch a video, and it's another thing to actually have your fingers in there, and then me tell you like, no, you have to go deeper, like you have to go, 
more or like be more firm, you know? Yeah. I think um, a lot of parents are afraid they're going to hurt the baby or they're like, this seems like, uh, like cruel, like what am I doing? And so I remember yeah. as a mom, when, when my second daughter was released at five days old by the oral surgeon I went to in Maryland, um, they did the same thing where like we fed and they said, okay, when you're done with the feed, call us back in and we'll go over the stretches with you. And I mean, I was that therapist already at that point. So I yeah. kind of knew, but yeah. at the same time, it was my own child. It's like, you forget everything when it's your own kid. And so it was so nice to have someone there showing me, guiding me and, you know, me making sure like, okay, I can do this to everybody else's child. <laughs> my doing it right yeah. on my own. <laughs> so yeah, I love, yeah. I love that. It's so key to go over it with the parents and make sure they feel confident before they leave the office. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, and then I also have, uh, I also have uh, the stretch video like on YouTube and I just like will tell them to just refer back to it um, if, uh, if they need a refresher or whatnot. Um, I also, uh, so as far to answer your question though, uh, as far as follow-up, so I'll typically see patients at one week follow-up and then uh, depending on how things are going, uh, I will either see some patients weekly or, uh, or like a four week like post-op visit follow-up. Um, and then I kind of just base the follow-ups depending on how things are going. That's great. Uh, but that's, that's kind great. of the minimal follow-up that I'll do is, is one week and four weeks. Um, and then I also uh, encourage them to have a lactation consultant uh, on board for in between those periods, right? Uh, that's where it's like totally uh, helpful. Um, and then, you know, we talk about body work and, and all those things. We have resources that we uh, have recommendations for like local providers. I love it. You have the whole team going. We'll talk, we can talk more about that. So in terms of like the team, um, are there specific ways that you communicate with team members or things that you're looking for, whether it's lactation, a, you know, feeding specialist beyond lactation, like an SLP or OT or, you know, myofunctional yeah. therapist for our older kids and adults, dental providers, are there certain things? I know it's like kind of a loaded question, but I look at everybody as a team. So what what is yeah, the approach yeah. there in terms of communicating with everybody and all being on the same page? Yeah, so um, generally uh, I try, so after I see patients, I'll try to get a copy of my note to uh, any of the team members um, within a day or two. Um, so I, I, I still fax notes. Uh, some people who don't have fax, I'll email the notes. Um, but, uh, but I, I pretty explicitly say in the note, like, uh, recommendation, I, I recommended like body work or I recommend like a palate evaluation for lingual palatal space, or I'll recommend, um, you know, uh, if they didn't already have a lactation consultant, I recommend IBCLC, uh, establishment of care, right? So I'd be pretty explicit in like that treatment section, uh, that, this right. is what I like them to do. Um, and I'll, I'll also put there like, um, for example, you know, we want to do these things like before release or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, I, I really uh, encourage like open communication. So uh, all of my like team members, uh, they all have my cell phone, uh, my email. So we always like either text or, or, email about patients uh, if there's any issues or, or whatnot to kind of help to coordinate the care, uh, especially if there's, 
you know, there's some complex patients sometimes, like they need to do one thing first and then the, the next thing. Um, and so uh, just having all those lines open um, for whatever is the most convenient at the time for each provider is, uh, is very helpful because then it, it also helps me to determine like when I should do certain things or, or do I need to wait on, on releasing a tie for others, other things. So um, it's a little, it's a little bit of work. Um, and I, I definitely have, I, ha I definitely have an assistant that, that helps me like organize everything. But um, I think it's, it's one of those things that will provide patients with optimal care. Yeah, no, and I think it's, it's like you said, it's work, but it's critical to the success in the, of the case for a lot of the patients. So I highly appreciate that. It's, it's something that I do with, you know, some of my team members. Um, I recently moved to South Florida, but my practice is still mainly up north and my team is like operating up there. And so, um, uh, you know, we have a really great network of providers across the DMV and it's incredible when you have the ability to text or email the oral surgeon or the release, you know, whoever the release provider might be. Plus, you know, they, they say, Hey, is the kid ready? And, or what are we still, you know, where are we at? And they won't release yeah. the patient unless the patient is truly ready. And I think that we need to have more of that going on in, you know, yeah. um, with teams across yeah. the United States, well, really globally, but <laughs> I'll focus on the U S yeah. first. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because a lot of these kids coming out who get released without proper, pre-op, you know, or post-op plans in place, it's just, it's a lot of them head back for additional releases because we end up getting reattachment or, and, or the child is highly dysfunctional. And then we have a really upset parent who's going like, my kid won't eat at all now. What do I do? I'm yeah. like, they weren't ready. This is not, this is not yeah, yeah. what a tongue tie. Yeah. And then there's always the once in a blue moon, uh, parent who will say oh yeah my myofunctional therapist said we're ready but they actually were not yeah so so especially for releases like i i always have to have some kind of communication directly from the myofunctional therapist because uh more there's been more than one time where it's it's been uh oh but you know, they said we were ready, but they actually were not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I've, uh, Our parents, I've, we love them dearly, but <laughs> the team to sign off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, what are your goals then, like from a sleep and airway management standpoint? Cause I know you've got all kinds of patients coming your way. Um, yeah. what do you look for from a goal standpoint? So, uh, for all of my sleep patients, uh, I'm just going to say sleep because like airway is essentially sleep. Um, yeah. Also, I, you know, so there's the common term, like people talk about airway focused ENT or, or, or airway centric ENT. I kind of like dislike that term because if you say that in general, like without being in a setting of like myo or uh, like-minded professionals, right. Uh, all ENTs would say, I'm We're airway really, focused. Yeah. I'm airway <laughs> like that's yeah. what we do. We, we operate in the airway. We manage the airway. Um, so I, it always kind of rubs me a little bit in the wrong way. Like it that term sense. just because, yeah. because yeah. it's not really like um, discreet. It's not like clear. 
because uh, really all ENTs are. Um, I don't have a replacement term though, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know, maybe enlightened. No, I, no, I don't know. I, I don't know. What, we'll have to, we'll have to think know. of something that, that specifies. I mean, I think in dentistry, it makes sense because dentists, people assume like they work in the mouth, right? So to say you're an airway centric dentist, where you also are looking at the airway is very different than saying airway centric, airway centric or airway focused ENT. And I've always joked and said, well, I mean, by default, ENTs do airway, like that is their job. Yeah. So yeah. like, it almost yeah. seems like a double, like, <laughs> like you're saying it twice. Yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, for anybody who is obviously not in the space, it's it's a different type yeah. of approach to airway, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how yeah, to yeah. phrase it either. But yeah, yeah. no, I can yeah. appreciate That's that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, so to answer your question, uh, so in regards to uh, what I look for, so uh, all, all of these patients get a full anatomic assessment. So uh, uh, assessment of what, well, for all my patients, they get a full anatomic assessment. So ears, nose, throat. So the whole upper upper, uh, upper airway examination. Um, we also have the ability to, to look with a camera in the throat. So like a flexible uh, fiber optic camera um, to look like, further in the back. So if you can't, you know, you can't see uh, like lower down into the throat, like into the larynx, for example, the, the voice box, right? Um, if there's issues down there. So we can, if if indicated, we can also look in the office, like with, with those tools. Very, it sounds scary, but it's pretty quick and, and, and uh, painless for patients. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, specifically focusing uh, for sleep patients on nasal anatomy and, uh, and oral anatomy, um, uh, I do use the uh, TRMR uh, uh, classifications. Um, I, I don't like do percentages or anything, but I just do like visually. Uh, and, and then I describe like compensations that I see. Um, within the note. So, so if anybody looks at my note, they can see like, okay, this is, this is what, you know, this is what he saw. Um, and, you know, along that same vein, I, I like for uh, my referring providers and, and other team members to also kind of document what they see, you know, cause everybody, you know, has a, you know, maybe there's some borderline cases, you know, you know, that, that could be helpful to get other people's evaluations and, and compare. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think like when talking about the goals, I think it's, you kind of touched on how, like, we want to know about function and I think that's important. So like I'm creating a myo course right now and in, in my feed the peds course where I teach like feeding really to the birth of five crowd with my, my other team of providers that we teach, um, I teach on the TOTS and the Mayo stuff. And I also teach the TRMR and I, we put that into our evaluation forms and, you know, we, we do teach them how to get percentages because from our standpoint, sometimes insurance likes to see numbers and I'm, you know, we're private pay, but for those who aren't, yeah. I try to give them as many numbers as we can, but I also go back and tell them and I, I teach them, I say, here's the other systems out there for classifying tethered oral tissues, because you're going to hear people say them. However, I've never used them because, uh, you know, class one on this is a stage four on that. And it means nothing unless somebody knows that scale. So describe what you see 
talk about the insertion, talk about the restricted, you know, tissue, talk about the function impairment and, you know, or if they're, if it's not impairing function, obviously we're not going to refer on, but for all intents and purposes, exactly what you said, you know, I love that there's been some research behind the TRMR. So we can at least look at it from that, you know, from that standpoint, plus we look at the compensations because we know, well, if there's compensations, everything goes out the window. Like now we have no number because yeah. they're compensating. So yeah. it's not really right. valid. Um, right. But I think that- you can say it's a grade one, but they're doing all these compensations. So it's, right. it's functionally an issue, yeah. Right, exactly. It's like yeah. the face is tense and they're raising the floor of the mouth and they're, you know. So yeah, I think yeah. it's um, I think it's very important to describe what we see. And I've, I've told everyone, I think that's the most useful information across providers. Nobody cares what scale, they just really wanna know what's the functional impact if one exists. What are you seeing from your, your training and your eyes so that we can all kind of come together as a team and put all of our visions together to figure out the best treatment plan for this patient. So I love, I love that you have a very similar perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think also from a, from, from a functional standpoint, uh, I really like, so all of my sleep patients, um, and, and Thai patients get, uh, get an additional survey um, before I see them. Um, Cause I don't want to like, if I say stuff, I don't want to impact what they put on their survey. <laughs> I want to get it before I talk to them, um, but they'll get either. So for infants, um, so I use like an adaptation uh, of uh, Dr. Baxter's uh, survey. So the infant tongue tie survey, I've kind of adapted it to, to what, um, what uh, I'd like to see my patients talk about, and then um, his uh, tongue restriction questionnaire. So okay. older kids and adults will get that one, and then the, the infants will get the infant tongue tie survey. So Great. from a functional standpoint, that really helps me to see like what symptoms they have, um, even as a screening tool too. Um, so I can, you know, kind of like say if they have certain things, like I can, uh, I can show them, look, you, you're having a lot of these things. Look at the screening survey. You have all these check marks on here, right? Like, is there something that's potentially a contributing factor to all of these things, something in common? So sometimes that's, that's how sometimes, because um, patients, often adults, they're incredulous, right? Like you tell them, you know, you have a tongue tie and no one's ever told them that before in older years of life telling me that why has no one else ever told me that (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. but then you can point to it and say look you have all these symptoms that we we see in patients who have this so uh, i think it's helpful both as a uh, information gathering tool but also as a patient education tool Yes, I love that. We, um, I created this pediatric feeding screening tool for like mostly, mostly for SLPs and OTs. And we have a milestone chart in it. And the way that we created the milestone chart from birth to 36 months as, you know, oral motor skills should develop, really, we are able to draw a line across or kind of cross out like what they don't have yet. So then we can sit with a patient, with a parent and say, hey, look, like this is where the child currently is at. This is where we want them to be. And again, I think I love any type of educational tool that's visual that a parent can, you know, either walk, take home with them and kind of go like, like, sit down and absorb. Okay. Like 
This is what Dr. Tran told us. This is, you know, I, I think that's so powerful because I mean, we know patients remember maybe a third of what we tell them. And it's always so overwhelming. Right. Even if they came for that reason, I feel like they leave kind of like, okay, I kind of got my answer, but I'm feeling completely overwhelmed as to what to do next. Yeah. Even though I was told like where to go next, like, holy cow, yeah. like it's happening. So yeah, yeah, I think that that's, I love these kinds of tools because I think they really, they improve patient care and understanding of why we're recommending what we're recommending. So kudos to you. I love that. <laughs> um, and then on, on the tongue tie topic, I actually had a question that came up recently in a discussion. So um, what are, and I'm curious to know just your opinion as an ENT on this. So kids with ear infections, do you feel that children who have ear infections, knowing that obviously usation tube changes over the early years of life, um, do you feel a posterior tongue tie can be directly impacted or can it, it a lack of like the tongue in the palate, for example, lightly suction to the palate, can that contribute to, I don't want to say cause, but can it contribute to yeah, yeah. usation tube dysfunction and otitis media and yeah. like, what are your thoughts so, there? So that's something I've, I've, I've spoken to some people about too, uh, about how much an effect that can have. I don't think it's, I don't think for many people it would be a direct effect because, okay. uh, uh as far as like eustachian tube, so um, having the posterior tongue approximate the palate, push mm -hmm. the palate up and then release kind of is like a pump for the eustachian tube, right? So you could see how it could help to, you know, like just in general, when you swallow, you, you clear the eustachian tube, right? Like because yeah. of the pumping mechanism. So theoretically, I mean, if you could, if you, ensure that you have better posterior tongue mobility, you could have a better pump. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have really poor posterior tongue mobility, then your tongue can't come up there and it can't pump it as well. But can you pump it with other things? Like, you know, some people are able to, to pop their ears without moving okay. their tongue, right? Like you can, you, can, you can flex the muscle in your palate and, and pop your ear. Um, so there, there could be other ways I, I don't think it's gonna gonna be a direct uh a direct um, causation or anything like that but i do feel like it's an it's at least um a tool uh that that people use to pop their ears that if you have impaired mobility that's one less tool that you can use to pop your ears um that's helpful so yeah yeah, I've been yeah. curious. I've seen like this discussion go like both directions, and of course, in the world yeah. of Facebook and you know Google, it's like, yeah, what what's accurate, what's not so accurate. I'm I'm over here creating this Mayo course, and I spent like I don't know seven hours just like teaching, reviewing the anatomy to create my you know two and a half hour presentation to go over like, hey, this is the these are the muscles, and then here are the bones that yeah. are directly related to the orofacial yeah. complex and what we're doing. And you know, I'm like, you know, there's uh, the levator palatini muscle, which obviously is connected to what we're talking about. And so that's yeah. where I was like, yeah. I mean, if there's dysfunction yeah. there, I can see that. I yeah. don't know. I mean, obviously, I feel like maybe it can contribute. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a direct cause, but I'm not an ENT, so I defer. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you, I will tell you that there are. Uh, uh, kids that we release tongue ties and they still get ear infections later. Right. Yeah. And they still end up needing tubes later because there's so many other factors. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I would say the most salient factor would is exposure like daycare and, and like social exposures. 
because uh, no matter what you do to optimize anatomy, uh, if you're just getting that exposure and you're getting sick, um, you're just going to get it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, I, you know, I think there are other, definitely other things. Um, unfortunately curing tongue ties do not cure all things. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we tell everybody we're like, that is one piece of the puzzle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of many pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, no, yeah. thank you. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, yeah. so in terms of the whole, like, you know, polarization and discussion around tongue ties, tether oral tissues, like we just said, obviously it's one piece of the puzzle. Do you have any other, um, like thoughts to share with us or any interesting experiences surrounding tongue ties that you'd be willing to share either from patient experiences or anything to that effect? Yeah, I think, I think what makes it so polarizing, uh, besides the fact that like medical education doesn't truly cover it, uh, uh, in most instances, um, I think, the other part of it that is really polarizing is the myofascial part, right? So uh, where where we start to kind of drift into uh, saying that, uh, you know, constipation can improve and like sciatica can improve, right? And, and just by releasing the tongue, right? And yeah, we see those things happen. Um, but when you tell somebody who's not, like in the know that, uh, that these are, this is happening, they kind of are, they kind of think you're, you're crazy. Right. So, um, <laughs> but I think, I think that's, what's the most polarizing thing is because people don't understand like, you know, it's the fascia connection and, and whatnot, but, um, even with the fascial connection, like you don't see those things improve in, in everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's still a lot that is not known, um, or as far as the way I put it is, is I ideally would like to predict what things are going to improve when I do a surgery. Um, and with releasing ties, I can't always do that. Like there are certain things I can predict, um, but there are some really surprising things that happen uh, that um, like in one, in one patient, like, it's robustly changed. For example, like neck strain, right? The most common things I see in adults with tongue ties are neck strain and and uh, grinding or bruxism, right? Um, in some patients, like they'll never have to see a chiropractor again, right? But in some patients, like it improved, but maybe not that much, right? So um, I, I hate not being able to pr predict things uh, because as the surgeon, that's what you want to do. Um, but, uh, when it comes to ties, I think that's the other polarizing point is, is, um, there are so many effects that, that people will have that, um, when you just talk to people, they, they, they don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting too, cause there's a major divide, like in the speech world even, and, you know, where people feel like, uh, Oh, and I, like, I know there are some adults who have gone and gotten, they've gone and had their release done, but they didn't do the proper pre-op and post-op. So now they're adamant that like ties don't work, releases don't work. This is ridiculous. Why are we sending these, you know, if they're not breastfeeding, why are we sending these children for releases? And then you have the other side of it where we're going, 
like you're saying, well, we don't know the full extent of what improvements we're going to see, but we generally know we're going to see some type of improvement. And if this child has, is functionally, you know, suffering, like they're really, whether they're feeding or their sleep, or even for some kids, I had a 13 year old who had been in 11 years of speech with seven speech therapists. Nobody had ever done an oral motor eval on him. Nobody had ever looked under his tongue. The mom was like, you're the first person to ever go in his mouth. His score was at the level of a two-year-old from a speech standpoint on the speech standardized speech test. And yeah. when he had his functional frenuloplasty and we worked together for six months, he left and he could finally speak normally. And I mean, for a teenage boy, that's huge. I mean, there's a, there's a social emotional impact beyond just the speech factor. And so, you know, I think that so people are so dismissive, but we forget we're working with humans with real emotions. And while they might be in preschool right now, a lot of these kids, like they're yeah. going to grow up to be children yeah. who are embarrassed by their teeth impinging on their lower lip. If they have a, you know, a, a malocclusion, if they're going to be embarrassed about their lisp at the age of 10 and 11, when people start to make fun of them. And sometimes that happens earlier, you know, there's a much further reaching impact on some of these kids. And so obviously it's, it's a full team approach. It's not a tongue tie release and everything is magically, you know, fixed, which I think yeah. people would love. And some people think that's why it doesn't work because everyone just goes for release. Oh, it didn't work. Well, like yeah. you said, in some patients, we do see some spontaneous recovery for certain symptoms, but for a lot of patients, we need that full team approach to rehabilitate, you know, neuromuscular reeducation. We got to train the tongue where to exist in the mouth. We got to work on the entire body because it's been compensating for so long and everything is just in misalignment for me. I was that adult, you know, case where I had, um, what was it? Um, orthodontic, uh, why can't I think Relapse. of the word? Huh? Relapse. Yeah. Thank you. Relapse. <laughs> the word is not coming to me this morning. Orthodontic relapse, right? I had the orthodontic relapse. Like I had RPE, I had braces. Then I had upper and lower permanent lingual bars that I made them take off at 30. Cause I was like, why haven't they fallen out? Like you said they would 10 years ago. And then, um, my teeth started to shift. I was like, what's going on. And so then I went into adult expansion followed by Invisalign and, you know, and I'm not done yet. I, I need to have a terminate reduction. Like I'm, I'm a work in progress, but it's one of those things where, you know, I appreciate the process because it's not just a one and done. It's now that I'm an adult, this is a much bigger puzzle to figure out and like different pieces to maneuver as I go through it with the, the kids, like, or arguably an early intervention, my daughter, we expanded her with an ALF upper and lower at age four and she had a tongue tight um, release at 24 months. And she's now like redoing Mayo after expansion, um, but much easier of an approach to deal with yeah. her at four and five than me in my thirties. So I'm like, we can just, you know, back it up people and, and really start to believe in this early intervention and looking at function. It, it makes we can treat adults too, obviously, and very successfully, but we need a lot more the older that we get. And there's a lot more cooks in the kitchen, I feel like, with really making yeah. it hold full body at this point for me, at least. So, yeah. It's a lot more complex. It sure is. Yeah. Yeah. So what about um, like sleep and tonsils and adenoids? Do you see a lot of kiddos that do you refer for sleep studies? Like what does your practice look like in that arena with, with young pediatrics? Yeah. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of like controversy over this, but I typically don't recommend a sleep study mm -hmm. until we address 
things that so the the way I I, I describe it is okay if you're bringing your child to me usually you know that there's a sleep problem like you know that they have apneas or their mouth breathing or they're gasping and so you know that there's a breathing issue during sleep um, the advantage of getting a sleep study up front is if you think that they're going to tolerate a CPAP to treat mm. to bypass those obstructions uh, before we do something about the anatomy right um, most kids aren't gonna do that like so maybe some you know if, if they're desperate enough like they'll they'll do it right but also like CPAP even though it's touted to be like oh the gold standard right yeah sure it's the gold standard you're bypassing all obstructions but you know you think about putting this mask on your face and and compressing it down right and and you know you're a kid growing right and you're you're restricting your uh, the physical like pressures right so um there could be some skeletal or anatomic you know limitations that arise from that um so it's not always like cpap isn't always the answer for everybody um so my thing is if you know that there are certain issues like if those tonsils are grade four out of four tonsils right you know you're gonna have to get those out might as well get those out first and if you have any persistent things then you can always get a sleep study after um but also depending on what the rest of your anatomy is, right? Um, so one of the most quoted uh, ENT studies for tonsillectomy, adenotonsillectomy in sleep, uh, quotes about 85% cure rate in kids with uh, adenotonsillectomy, right? Well, we're at the other 15%, right? Um, there's a lot, there's other papers that talk about um, like palate expansion and uh, skeletal surgery, like after failed adenotonsillectomy, right? I don't think that there's a paper specifically on tongue ties uh, after adenotonsillectomy, um, specifically like just that. Uh, but I do find, I, I do feel like, because uh, I'll see kids after having adenotonsillectomies and they still have sleep issues, right? Um, I feel like a lot of those patients are tongue tie patients and whether or not they need like skeletal orthodontic surgery, um, I do feel like a large portion of them didn't really need that. They just needed the tongue tie released. Um, that would be a really interesting study. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it, but <laughs> but that would be a good study for for people to do. <laughs> yeah, no, that I mean that's that's fascinating too. I feel like there's. There's so much interesting information coming out too now on, um, you know, I, who was it? I have to think of the name. I just put it in my course, but it's not officially published yet. But there was, I think it was a case study where they observed like a 43% reduction in tonsil size with um, skeletal expansion as well. And so I was, you know, I, I'm sure that this is also probably not every case and it's going to depend on so many variables, but I saw this with my daughter and I posted it in a group once and I was told to take it down because there's no evidence to support that this could have possibly happened. I'm like, no, I came to the group because she's had this ALF appliance in her mouth for three months. She's had chronically enlarged tonsils, like three, three plus that look infected, but she doesn't mouth breathe. So the ENT wouldn't take them out. Not that I wanted to put her under surgery, but I was like, I'm a little concerned that her airway is a bit, con you know, constricted. And so she went into the appliance with 
that wasn't my intention. Cause I, you know, in my brain, I was never taught that that could be a possibility. And I'm like, her tonsils yeah. are like a size one. They went from like a three plus to a one in three months. It's cold and flu season. It's cold in the DC metro area. This is November. Like, yeah. has anybody seen anything like this? Like, what are, like, what's going on? And I was like, I know it can also fluctuate throughout childhood. So there, there could be that, but we had changed absolutely nothing else. No medications, no food, no, like no, nothing else. Right. So I'm like, I would expect during cold and flu season and cold air that maybe they would have remained the same size. I wouldn't expect them to shrink. So I was like, could this be the appliance? And people were like, yeah, I'm seeing some of that too. And, you know, and I, before that I had yeah. patients come to me and go like, well, we're going to not do the tonsillectomy. We're going to do a growth appliance first. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. I mean, I can't really say that, but I really don't think there's any merit to that. And then I sat with yeah. my own child and I was like, oh, maybe there is something when we gain more yeah. airway space and we don't have as much turbulent air coming in because I think she was maybe yeah. breathing more at night and that decreased as well, possibly. Yeah. But anyways, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, I have no idea on this, this topic, but have you seen or heard of yeah. or had any discussion around this? So I feel, I, I mean, uh, there's always going to be like case, case, essentially like case reports or whatnot. Right. Like right. I, don't, I don't ever tell patients like, you know, you should do this and let's see if your tonsils decrease in size. Um, but I, I mean, from a physiologic standpoint or, or pathophysiologic standpoint, so um, the turbulent, turbulent airflow causing tissue edema, right? Like, right. so we see this all the time with the yeah. uvula, right? People who yeah. snore, the uvula is flapping around and it causes it to really enlarge. And then if you decrease their snoring, a lot of times that uvula will get small again, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you could have, when it was large, you could have gone and cut it, um, but like you fix the snoring another way and, and now it's small again, right? So um, who's to say that can't happen with the tonsils too, if, if the tissue is kind of rubbing around and, and you know, flapping around uh, with yeah. the snoring and, and whatnot. Um, but then also like with the mouth breathing thing, you know, constantly exposing it to uh, antigens like airborne antigens, and maybe yeah. maybe that's playing a role. Um, I don't know. I don't have I don't have a scientific <laughs> answer. But but exactly. I mean, when we think about like pathophysiology, you know, and edema in the airway or swelling in the airway, like turbulent flow could cause tissue edema. So who's yeah. to say that that can't happen for the tonsils? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a very interesting topic. So I guess uh, my other question for you is, I know that there, it's really hard to find ENTs who look at this, the airway from the, the standpoint that you do and a couple other of the big names, like in the industry that, you know, with really trying to appreciate from a myofunctional standpoint, like how do we help the patient sitting in front of us if they're coming back with, oh, they have no allergies, but we know there's inflammation. We can't expect them to nasal breathe currently because they do have some enlarged either tonsils and or adenoids, but nobody's willing to remove them. They haven't even offered a plan of action. They've kind of just turned the patient away. Um, do you have any recommendations for how to find ENTs that are more, you know, who are trained in this space, if you will? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough uh, because there's not really like a, um... There's not like a directory there's not really right now. It's like <laughs> a directory or anything. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a good answer for you uh, on that. Yeah, that's um, kind of what we were up against, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, but I think a good start are all of these, uh, 
online um, communities that uh, that people are participating in that that uh, essentially are becoming a directory uh, yeah. of sorts um, for like-minded uh, professionals. So uh, I think those are those are uh, good ways to start. Thank you. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have. I don't have. I know. Any. I was like, I don't know if you have any secret, you know, <laughs> secrets up your sleeve you can throw at us, but it's okay. That's that's, and that's pretty much what we do too. I have my Myo membership, which is a community of myofunctional therapists, and there's you know some dentists, and we do. Everyone constantly is coming in there and going like, Hey, who do you know here? Hey, who do you know here? And it's it's great yeah. that we have the ability to do that here and in some of the other groups online. Um, because I think without that, like, it's just patients are going untreated and it's really, I'm, I'm a big connector. I have a lot of parents who also message me and I encourage them to on Instagram. And I say, DM me, I will help you find somebody in your area. And if, if not, you know, an ENT or a dentist, I'll find a feeding therapist or a myofunctional therapist who may know, you know, go to them first, and then they may be able to connect you with the team if necessary. So it's, it's so critical. I think that we help these patients because they, they have nowhere to to turn to. And I know as providers, we're over here kind of going like, we we're trying to figure that out too. So yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I do. Oh, sorry. I, I do think it's one of those things that um, because the results are so re- robust, yeah. like there's so much benefit that people are getting from treating these things in this manner. It's only a matter of time before it happens where it's it's not it's no longer like airway centric or airway focused ENTs that you're looking for it's just part of the ENT curriculum right um but it just, <laughs> it just that has to get there yeah it yeah. just has to get there <laughs> yep exactly um and I guess my last question for you too then on that sort of similar topic is when you have a child, I actually love that you don't make them go for a sleep study. I think that it's kind of traumatic for some kids to have to go to yeah. a center and or parents trying to do the home sleep test, depending on what it is a kid has to wear, whether it's on their hand or their face, yeah. um, which yeah. I think they're invaluable. But at the same time, we we know what we see and we know what yeah. may be necessary. So um, I've always been told that sometimes it's an insurance thing. Sometimes insurance might require like a sleep study to cover certain procedures. I don't know. That's just kind of hearsay, but there, there is some truth to that. Um, yeah. But there are other there are other ways to, um, like for example, like you don't have to have sleep apnea. You could have like sleep disorder breathing, right, mm-hmm. uh, as the diagnosis, right. So, uh, but there are some things like uh, that insurance does unfortunately uh, tie your hands a little bit. Yeah. Um, but so far, I think for for uh, most things, it's not terrible. <laughs> That's good. And so like when these yeah. kids come to you and they're sitting in front of you with like, you know, maybe mid-level enlarged tonsils and you're like, I don't know that we necessarily need to take them out yet. Do you have, do you treat with like nasal sprays or medication or anything first, or do you typically go for the procedure or like, what's your protocol? I know there's obviously various factors, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously the other factors have to have to be playing a role. Um, if we're just talking about um, uh, isolated tonsillar hypertrophy uh, in the absence of like allergies, in the absence of um, maybe any any other symptom, mm-hmm. I would say do nothing. 
uh, if they have borderline uh, tonsillar hypertrophy with sleep symptoms um, and they don't have any nasal symptoms, no uh, allergies or anything. Um, usually there's something else. Now, what I would say is, uh, and, and depending on the age too, because you know some patients, uh, depending on the age, you can get a more functional evaluation uh, uh, physical exam wise. Um, but you can like, say if, say if there are sleep issues, um, but the only thing you find, there's no tongue tie, you know, there's no oral restrictions, but maybe just borderline, uh, tonsillar hypertrophy. I would say, why not do myofunctional therapy, right? Especially if you're not sure functionally how they're using their tongue. Um, because the studies do show that you can get a decrease in the HI with just um, myofunctional therapy, right? Yeah. Um, and so I've, I do find that a lot of kids don't have great tongue positioning uh, and whatnot. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's pretty, I would say it's less common to have sleep symptoms and just have borderline tonsillar hypertrophy and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, usually there's something else going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like say for this, kind of uh, uh, hypothetical situation, mm -hmm. I would still just do myofunctional therapy, right? Because yeah. the studies show that that kind of improvement, like pretty robust improvement, right? 50% in yeah. kids, 62% in adults, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you don't lose anything because you're not operating, you're not, you're not structurally altering any anatomy, um, but you're just optimizing function. Um, and if that does it, well, like, like you talked about with improved airflow with ALF on your daughter, uh, maybe if you have improved airflow, maybe less mouth breathing um, through myofunctional therapy, maybe those tonsils will decrease in size, right? I'm not going to tell patients, like, that's what I'm, you know, yeah, that's, for, but that's, <laughs> my point, that's my goal point, right? But um, say if, for that hypothetical situation, right, um, I'm not going to be really aggressive with removing tonsils um, if they're not enlarged mm -hmm. significantly. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty big surgery to recover yeah. from. Um, yeah. And yeah. even though it's, it's like one of the, the quote unquote, like bread and butter procedures of ENTs, um, it's like one of the most uh, high, one, one of the more high risk and like, lower reward <laughs> uh, surgeries. Uh, obviously, it could potentially be high reward, right? If the if the tonsils are huge, like, yeah. it's going to be high reward. Well, especially, um, like, if you, you gotta, both, like, do you ever remove just adenoids, even if the tonsils are enlarged? Do you typically do both? Or is it, again, just kind of de depending yeah. on the functional impairment? So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's also a controversial subject, and I think mm -hmm. in ENT also, uh, whether you uh, can just remove um, adenoids for sleep disorder breathing versus tonsils and adenoids. Um, for me, what would justify removing adenoids alone and not tonsils or one, if the tonsils are small, um, but two, if you're having symptoms from the adenoids, uh, being enlarged, uh, recurrent ear infections, uh, like persistent rhinorrhea, like, because it's so blocking in the back that it can't go down, it just goes out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are 
factors that I look at to, to see if I will just um, offer adenoidectomy alone uh, without tonsils. So every patient's kind of different. I kind of use use everything that's going on to make that determination. But um, the other thing is also, you know, age, age dependent factors, right? Because um, if they're really young, like doing a tonsillectomy is, is, a, is a huge deal, especially in the really young ones. Um, so I try not to, unless it's like really prominent. Yeah. Um, I have two yeah. questions from my group that I would love to ask you if you have a couple more minutes. Are we good on time? Okay. So um, one question is how the removal of tonsils and adenoids impacts um, our overall health, like from an immune standpoint, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, so I know uh, there's like a study that everybody uh, quotes about uh, increased risk of like upper respiratory infections and things like that. Uh, for people who've had their tonsils and adenoids taken out. The problem with that study is, is it's an associative study. It's not etiologic, right? So uh, it's, it's like saying, it's kind of like the, the study on uh, PPIs causing uh, all these different like osteoporosis and things like that, right? Like PPIs, like generally, generally speaking, uh, older people, take PPIs, older people are also more likely to have osteoporosis, right? So same thing for like adenotonsillectomy and like upper respiratory infections. People who are having upper respiratory infections also tend to be people who are more likely to have inflammation of the tonsils and adenoids, which will then need to be removed. So uh, I don't think it's a causative uh, thing there. Um, now, Specifically for um, uh, like immune function, I would say okay. Uh, there, there, there's definitely some immune function with those tissues. Uh, you know, exposure to antigens will induce like immune system response, right? And these, the way I describe it to patients is kind of like. Uh, these areas, the, the adenoids and the tonsils, they're like lymphatic tissue. So they're just like all the lymph nodes in your neck. Like when you get sick and you get these lymph node swellings in your neck, um, these are essentially the same as that. Now they have a special, uh, a special quality of being exposed to the outside air. Um, so you can get exposure to those different antigens. Um, but as far as like lymphatic drainage, there'll be other pathways that things can drain, um, not just those. Um, I don't think we know uh, for certain how much an effect that it can have. Um, and for that reason, like I, I definitely wouldn't recommend just having a low threshold to take them out on everybody. Uh, I think it's appropriate to take them out when they're causing functional issues, um, obstruction uh, and whatnot, right? Um, but uh, I wouldn't have a low threshold for that reason is, is we don't know how much of an effect it's having. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to do a study like that. Right. Like there's, that would be a really hard study to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So I mean, awesome. thinking pathophysiologically, um, sure. I, I'm sure that there's some immune system, um, 
effect, mm -hmm. uh, but risks and benefits, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. that having bad sleep is going to have a poor immune immune system effect. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the last question is: How does someone determine if a tongue tie release will negatively impact the airway space? Is there some sort of diagnostic indicator? And I think this kind of goes, this begs the question of, all right, if we have these individuals obviously who had their tongue on the floor of their mouth their whole life, they have not been, their tongue's not been up in the palate, they sleep on their back, now the tongue is released. Is there, I know we've had certain cases where release providers have said, I'm actually concerned that releasing this tongue will cause a greater sleep issue because their tongue will now more easily fall back in the, um, the back of the throat just based on the symptoms of that patient. So do you have, is there, a scale, an indicator, anything you look for to determine safety, you know, measures in yeah. terms of releasing a tie in sleep cases? Yeah. So, so what I would say is, is the, the big question there is space, right? So if there's space, yeah. um, we're assuming that these patients are getting like myofunctional therapy, of course, right? Um, now with myofunctional therapy and with exercising the tongue, giving it better tone and everything like that, you're, it's not going to just flop to the back like a dead fish, right? So, so um, doing the pre-work is going to be critical to make that happen. But if you don't have enough space, then then it has nowhere to go. So that's where you would have the issue um, is if there's not enough space in the palate for mm -hmm. it to go or or, um, or whatnot. So that's where it's really important to collaborate with your dental providers, like from an ENT perspective, um, because we, we're not really comfortable with like palate and dental interventions. Um, like I know about those things because out of necessity, like I kind of have to know about these different tools that, that you'll have to, to do this. But, um, I, if you told me like, should this pay, if you asked me, should this patient get like rapid palate expansion or an appliance, like I'm going to say, no, you go talk to your, your airway focused dentist or your orthodontist yeah. about that. Um, but, uh, but that's where the collaboration comes into play. Cause I, I have to rely on, on my uh, dental colleagues to, to make that, that final determination for me. What I look for is like, is there a lot of overflow of the tongue uh, during lingual palatal suction? Mm -hmm. Um, if there's a lot of overflow of the tongue onto the maxillary dentition, then that's a bad sign. <laughs> that's not going to go. Uh, scalloping right on the edges of the tongue. Um, that's a, you know, that's a sign that the, it's pushing against the teeth. Well, whether that's from a thrust of the tongue or, or whatnot, but that's why I like to look at it on lingual palatal suction and see uh, how much overflow there is. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's great. Thank you. I know from a myo standpoint, that'll make people very happy. They'll kind of go like, is this a, <laughs> what, what can we yeah. look at? And we do, we obviously do look for scalloping. We look at palatal overflow. We look at all this in our myofunctional evaluation. So you're speaking our language. Yeah. Um, I love how we brought that full circle though, because you know, I, I do the same where I, it's like, I've had to become familiar with dentition. I've had to become familiar with the, all of these different appliances to a certain extent, but I always love saying, I don't move teeth for a living. That's out of scope. I work with the soft tissue. So <laughs> you're going to have to go yeah. talk to, you know, the dentist or the ortho about that. Um, but I think that that really brings it, like I said, full circle to why it's so important to have the entire team working together because it, it, 
it is typically more complex. Like most patients are not just a straightforward one provider type of case. I, you know, we rarely see something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate that. So thank you. Is there anything that you want to share with us that we didn't cover today? I know we talked about a ton. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think that's, I think that's yeah. good. We covered it all. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris. I know we're welcoming you into uh, the Mayo membership in January to come chat with us then. And I look forward to that as well. Yeah, me too. Sounds good. Real quick, if you're listening to this on Monday, November 29th, on the date that it airs, run to themyomembership.com and join us because doors are currently open through 5 p.m. Eastern time today. Our Black Friday deal and Cyber Monday deal are still going on, themyomembership.com. Oh, and by the way, today's guest, Dr. Chris Tran, will be joining us in January 2021 to present to the Mayo Membership for continuing education credits. So you do not want to miss it. Go to themyomembership.com and learn all about about the CEUs, the research reviews, the case study calls, and the weekly office hours and daily Q&A wall. Tons of support, lots of past materials. Join us in there, themyomembership.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 